The Fern Line is supported by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym sports 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms. Stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check out the Alaska Rock Gym online at alaskarockgym.com. The Fern Line is also supported by the Moose's Tooth Pub and Pizzeria. Moose's Tooth has been a hub of the Anchorage community since 1996, offering a great selection of mouth-watering pizzas and salads, award-winning handcrafted beers, and incredible live concerts. To peruse the menu or find out more about upcoming live events, check the Moose's Tooth out online at moosestooth.net. Hey, Evan, did you hear that? Dude, it's a hoarding marmot. Looking for that last-minute piece of kit before heading into the hills? Make sure and stop by the hoarding marmot. Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop located in the heart of Spinard. The Hoarding Marmot has everything you need from high-end mountaineering gear, cross-country and downhill ski equipment, as well as a fine selection of local guidebooks, maps, and yummy trail snacks. Stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. On season two, I'm chatting with alpinists, rock climbers, and other outdoor enthusiasts who are pushing the limits of creativity in the mountains and in their daily lives. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with extraordinary people, the folks who choose to live full value lifestyles in some of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. All right, so we just have a few more episodes left in season two, and then I'm gonna take a few months to hunker down and work on a brand new season, which I think you're all going to enjoy very much. Before we dive into our episode today, I just wanna remind listeners that if you enjoy this podcast, there's a few ways you can really help out. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or within your favorite podcast app. You can tell someone directly, Word of mouth is the best way to get information out there, and it really helps create the grassroots vibe I'm going for. And if the Fernline adds value to your life, if you want to support this show from the ground up, you might consider becoming a monthly backer on Patreon. Just head on over to patreon.com slash the Fernline, and you can subscribe there to get early access to episodes, bonus podcasts, and other merch like stickers and music I produce. All right. So with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch, camp chair, or hastily assembled secondhand portalage and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line.
On today's episode of The Fern Line, we'll get to know professional rock climber Kevin Jorgensen. Over a long and ever-evolving career, Jorgensen has immersed himself in the multi-dimensional craft of rock climbing. As a youth, he honed his mental and physical skills while progressing to the top tiers of competition climbing. Later, he tested himself on classic and technical highball bouldering problems, from Fountain Blue to the Buttermilks. And more recently, he teamed up with Tommy Caldwell to complete the visionary free climb of the Don Wall, which was documented in a powerful and award-winning film. September feels like coming home. I recently got a chance to sit down with Kevin and talk about the importance of climbing in his life. But we also went below the surface and talked about his motives, how his experience as a competition climber helped him succeed on the Dawn Wall, and the simple power of optimism. We started our conversation by talking about Jorgensen's time growing up in Northern California and how that led to his first experiences climbing. You know, climbing was just something that was in my DNA. You know, I didn't find rock climbing until I was 11 when I went to the grand opening of a local climbing gym. I might have like been on a mobile wall at, you know, an outdoor fair kind of thing at like age eight or nine, but I didn't really find that it was a sport until I was 11. But prior to that, I was climbing everything in sight. From as soon as I could crawl, I was climbing things. My parents tell stories of me scrambling up any ladder I would stumble upon or any tree or fence. I mean, you name it. I've just always been vertically inclined. I think it was just a matter of time before I, I found the sport. How exactly did you did you get into it? I mean, do you remember your first experience or was there like a light bulb moment for you where you're like, oh my God, there's this whole like rock climbing world that exists and I want to do it? No, it was, it was like a very slow burn. Mm -hmm. But by age about 13 or so, I'd say that it started to take or capture more of my attention and I was spending more and more and more time. And so there was no like light bulb moment where it was like some epiphany of like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Right. It was more just something I always did and something that once I got introduced to the sport and the community behind the sport, uh, it really they really like took me under their wing in a way. And by 13, it was pretty much all I was doing. Right. So when you were 13 and when climbing became, as you say, like all you were doing, what did that look like for you? It looked like me spending 
seven days a week after school at the climbing gym, (laughs) essentially (laughs) just like this little rug rat, you know, like a, probably a hundred pounds. I mean, I was a real scrawny teenager and, and little kid, you know? So I was just there climbing my heart out surrounded by mostly people that were older than me and a lot better at climbing than me. Right. But that's when I started to kind of, get on the youth team and kind of have some mentorship built into that experience with climbing and uh, meet more kids my age that were good at it and passionate about it. And that just kind of began this flywheel of, of interest and improvement and more interest and passion and more improvement. And then, yeah, that flywheel just never stopped. Yeah. So maybe between 13 years old and like maybe your teen years, what was the trajectory of climbing like for you? I progressed pretty quickly, I think, which is one of the things that, you know, it's like a. what I love about climbing is the feedback loop is so instant. You have an idea about how to solve the problem in front of you and you either end up on the ground or hanging on the end of the rope or not. (laughs) It either worked or it didn't. You're either strong enough or you're not. Right. And the same thing goes with like your progressions through the grades as well. It's really easy to tell if you're if you're improving or if you're plateauing. And there was a lot of kind of early progression through the grades as a kid. And I spent most of my time, I'd say the earliest my like the first phase of my experience with climbing was competitions. So at the time it was called the JCCA and I mean it was such an awesome organization to be able to know meet a bunch of kids my age that were psyched about climbing and compete with them and against them and have friendly rivalries and try to one-up each other every every season so from i'd say 13 or 14 all the way up to 18 that was my world it was training and climbing and competing right um what was driving you was it competition or was it other stuff or was it a combination of all of it i guess with competitions yeah like i wanted to win i wanted to do well you know when i suck at something it really ticks me off right whether that's playing pool or you know whatever it is i do like i want to do it well right so with competitions it's one of those things where i decided that okay i'm going to pour myself into this and yeah i wasn't going to stop until i won Right. What do you think some of the valuable things that you learned about yourself during the climbing competitions? What were some lessons you learned? What were some things you learned about yourself during that period of time? I mean, one thing I love about competitions is that for a brief moment, climbing isn't so recreational. You know, even at the highest professional levels, especially outdoors, specifically outdoors, it doesn't matter. If you don't do your project on any given day, you just you don't climb your bouldering project on Tuesday, you just come back on Thursday. The stakes are low in most cases. So with comps, the stakes are high. I love that it creates this environment of having one shot to perform. And there was one experience in particular. It was a nationals in, I want to say, Michigan. And I was 17. And I was tied for first with Matt Siegel. What's up, Matt? From Florida. And Matt in the hat, we went to Youth Worlds together and he wore a fedora the whole time we were there. It was awesome. So we were tied for first going into finals and I I slipped off before the first bolt. 
And I just wanted to cry, you know? I mean, I did. I just like calmly untied and, and walked out. But it was one of those surreal moments where you're just standing on the ground and you're like, wait, did that just happen? Is it yeah. really over? Like yeah. first to last. I think there's a lot of value in going through an experience like that where you're put under that kind of pressure to perform. And again, that coming back to that feedback loop that climbing presents, it's like, it's so instant and so clear what works and what doesn't. And mm. just to learn to appreciate an opportunity when it's in front of you, you know, when you, you train all this time throughout the year, you know, you get on a plane, you're sleeping in a weird hotel that's with like a loud fan and you're eating strange restaurants and then you show up at this gym trying to warm up in isolation and then they finally call your name and you're on the chair with your back to the wall tied in and then they finally say, you know, it's, it's your turn to start climbing and you're given this opportunity. And it's like how cool to be standing there at that moment in time given the opportunity to perform, really, to like step up and see see what's going to pay off. I love that about comps and I love that about big wall free climbing. You know, before uh, we move on to the things that you were doing after your competition life, were there some mentors in your life really made an impact on you? Absolutely. Yeah. One in particular, he was the head route setter at the climbing gym. His name is Andrew Wallach. He was kind of the man, you know, above the, above the drinking fountain. I can still remember the picture because People would post little four by six pictures of their latest road trips above the water fountain at the climbing gym. And there was a picture of him on a, a 513A wild iris with these, you know, each hand was in these shallow two finger pockets and he was wearing moccasins and his wow. left foot was way up high, you know, kind of close to his hands. And the photographer was hanging on a rope. It wasn't a bad shot. It wasn't some butt shot, you know, it was like a quality, like, wow, Andy climbs 513, you know, mm. and he had long shaggy hair and he wore Birkenstocks. So I started wearing Birkenstocks and he was actually competing in the youth stuff as well. He was on the way to aging out while I was just getting in. So while being a coach, he was also competing, which was super cool, but he kicked my ass like Rocky Balboa style with his training at the gym <laughs> and pushed me real. He came up with the most torturous exercises on the wall and off the wall. And I loved it. You know, I couldn't get enough of it. He was super formative in those years for sure. As was that entire, that entire climbing community. I mean, the first time I went outside, it was with a married couple that were probably in their mid thirties, uh, John and Lisa, you know, and hopped in the car with them and went out to goat rock, which is like our local, schist right on the coast and got my ass kicked out there you know i climbed v6 or seven in the gym and i couldn't touch anything out there hmm. like oh i can do this no uh so a lot of my outdoor trips were with john elisa like my first trip to bishop my first little road trip to arizona we went to pre-straw i was doing homework in the back seat as we drove across the states <laughs> and so yeah i have a lot of super fond memories with with people from the climbing community in those teen years that really took me under their wing and, right. you know, took me outside and guided me th and pushed me as an athlete and gave me things to shoot for. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for touching on that. I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in hearing different people's experiences with the mentors they had. And it sounds like they were definitely important to you. It's uh, so important, man. And 
especially now, you know, but what I, what I appreciate about my experience with mentors is that they came from the gym and in some cases they stayed in the gym, you know, Mm -hmm. a common topic these days is mentorship when it comes to outdoor ethics and things like that. But I think it's equally important to have quality mentors, even if your ambition, if you have a city life and you're just climbing to the gym, I mean, they're, they can change your life in important ways, even if you never step foot outside, you know, just like the role of a mentor in any, in any endeavor, I think cannot be overstated. There I was On the highway Looking back over my shoulder To the country Although his life as a competition climber defined his youth in many ways, it was the freedom of climbing outside and a newfound passion for hard bouldering that would become the driving force in Kevin's life. I asked Kevin to talk about this period in his life, what his favorite bouldering areas were, and how that eventually led him to reach out to Tommy Caldwell. You got nothing in your way but your own reflection. The bitterness from your path Gives way to the open wide You are so hard to find Yeah, I think my experience with climbing goes in chapters. And chapter one was getting immersed in it and starting to compete. In 17, you know, I was looked like I was poised to have a shot, but <laughs> blew it in finals. And so the next year, I believe the nationals were in Portland. And I finally beat my my rival, Brian Smith. He was so smooth. He won every single year. He was a little bit older than me. Yeah, I can still tell you the sequence for like the the last 12 feet, you know, getting to the anchors, wow. got the finish hold and clipped the chains. And that was kind of it for competing for me. It was like such an awesome moment. And all this ambition that was built up was satiated all of a sudden. Right. And it's not that there were not other goals within competitions I could have set. You know, I always remember competing with Sean McCall and just being so impressed with his dedication to competing. And he's dedicated his whole life to that. You know, it's really cool to see. But for me, I think I got what I wanted out of that experience. When I stopped competing, it was partly because I had achieved what I wanted to achieve, but it was also because there were there was not a clear next step for competing as an adult in the U.S. There were no real... There's like a great infrastructure for competitions up until 19 and not a great infrastructure after. Right. So, you know, like Matt Siegel and myself and, 
you know, Honold, we all just, when we aged out, we all just started rock climbing, you know, which was great. We, you know, we've got our driver's license now, we can move around, and we all just started, started climbing outside uh, as much as we could. And for me, the passion was, was bouldering. It's just trying really freaking hard on, on small boulders that steadily got bigger. What are some uh, experiences or maybe some places that you bouldered um, that are memorable to you today? Or you think back and was like, man, that was like an incredible experience for me. Three areas come to mind. One, I experienced while in Europe for youth nationals it was, or youth worlds. And that was a trip to Fontainebleau. Oh, yeah. Which, and it was still my only, well, I've been twice but it was my first trip and oh my god that rock will change your life it is so good and i remember just running around the forest uh just giddy with excitement with the history of the place and the quality of the rock and just trying to get as much climbing as i could packed into the few days we had between arriving and then traveling to the competition so that really gave me a connection to the history of, of bouldering and an appreciation from where kind of the roots come from. And then the other two super formative bouldering areas in my life would be Bishop and Yosemite. Right. So by 16, I was like all in when it came to the sport. And my dad looked at this passion and was like, well, you haven't been to Yosemite. This is crazy. So we started this tradition of going to Yosemite in October for my birthday every year, starting on my 16th birthday. So I remember, you know, same kind of thing, walking up to Midnight Lightning and knowing the history of it and trying, but not being able to press out the mantle and just, you know, looking around the Camp Four boulders and picturing the Stone Masters pressing out these crazy mantles with no crash pads and, yeah. you know, these slabs that I couldn't touch that I know were done a long time ago. And, looking at Thriller and The Force and all of the Indominator and just being like, what, just floored at the connection to the past and how high the standards were. Right. I love that about climbing is that you can just go touch history anytime you want. Yeah. You just get out of the car and walk into the boulders and it's right there in front of you. It's not like surfing where the wave is, is one, it'll never exist ever again. You got 10 or 15 seconds and then it's gone forever. And no one else can experience that. These pieces of history are right there for the most part unchanged unless something breaks. And, you know, I love that about Fontainebleau and I love that about Yosemite and to Bishop to some extent, but more Bishop was my playground. I've spent more time bouldering in Bishop than anything. It was a super formative area for my climbing technique, for my, uh, for the aesthetic of the type of things I like to climb. Right. And, you know, it's it's got so much variety between the volcanic rock being in-cut and powerful on the fingers and the granite being super bold and technical. Yeah. I think it's an area that can you can round out a lot of skills uh, just by driving across town to these different areas. Right. And the weather's always good. <laughs> the weather's amazing. It takes a real storm to to get across those mountains and yeah. and shut it down. So yeah, I've, I've definitely spent more time in Bishop than even my hometown bouldering spots on the coast. Right. You know, I've only been to Yosemite one time and uh, I actually didn't get to climb there because it pissed rain the whole time, but... Oh, drag. You know, I mean, I know uh, 
I've seen all the films and I've read a lot of books and um, to think about that history there is pretty incredible to think about the, mm -hmm. everything. Um, so it's, it's really cool. I totally get it when you talk about that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I just love that connection. And, you know, I think while physical standards have come a long way since that time, I really don't think the mental standards right. have I, I don't think they've really surpassed what was being done back then. Right. <laughs> what do you, <laughs> and maybe for, uh, for listeners, what do you mean by that? So unless you've ever put up a first ascent, it's hard to appreciate the impact of the unknown on the, your experience with climbing to stand at the base of something with a topo in hand, knowing that the crux is, at the third bolt or 30 feet up and it involves X, Y, or Z is totally different than walking to the base of some formation and having no idea if the crack system you're about to climb even connects to the top of the mountain or, uh, if it's possible or if you're good enough or any of that, you know, you or just if don't, or if you'll be able to get down <laughs> or if you'll be able to get down or if you have, if you'll be able to place gear to protect it. I spent two years, working on a climb on higher cathedral spire that Royal Robbins and Tom Frost put up in the late sixties. It was the Northwest face of higher cathedral spire. And there's a pitch on it that Royal Robbins described as psychologically devastating. <laughs> when I read the, the first ascent report wow. and the pitch itself is called the chimney of horrors. <laughs> I, I shit you not. And it's this, it's this maw. It is, so appropriately named the first time I quested up the first few pitches and got, because it's the third, the chimney of horses, the third pitch, you just look up at this thing and it's not a vertical chimney. Imagine a chimney that then pinches down into a flare that then pinches down into a tiny fingertips crack. And then the crack disappears and you have to stem it. Wow. And now take that corner and tilt it to the right, like 30 degrees. Yikes. So the wall is still vertical, but it feels overhanging because yeah. it leans to the side. Sounds super and, awkward. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. So Royal just, this is one of the climbs that really solidified his reputation back then as being one of the most bold climbers out there because you can't protect a chimney. You know, you're, the safety comes with the fact that you can fit your whole body in there. You know, in fact, right. a lot of the early free climbs put up in the valley, you know, this is, it was the wide stuff. Because they actually felt more secure in it. So they did whole pitches of this stuff with no protection. It's just crazy. So he quests up this thing. And at first, you know, it starts out pretty easy. But then it starts to get narrower and narrower and narrower to the point where, you know, it's like you can't even get a knee in. You can't hand stack yet. You know, you're kind of arm barring. He's got no pro. So he kind of down climbs a little bit. And Royal never did this, but he put it in a bolt. You know, that's how, that's how serious the pitch was. Like you get Royal Robbins to place a bolt right. and you know shit's getting real. Right. So he puts the bolt in and then quests back up to his high point and finally finds a narrowing in the crack where he can pound in a piton. But it's not perpendicular to the rock. It's straight up and down, placed into an, like an undercling flake kind of, which is like definitely not how you want to place a piton. You know, just directionally, they're not really meant to be pulled on that way but but he placed this thing straight up into this little flaring expanding flake and then gingerly stepped into his aid slings 
looking at this huge whipper into the into the maw below that he just kind of emerged out of and then finally was able to aid his way up the pitch but you know i'm standing there at the base of this pitch looking up knowing it's possible knowing it's been done Mm -hmm. not only by royal but bob Gaines and scott cosgrove tried to free this route in the 80s and i know that they did this pitch so i know it goes free i know it goes on aid like and even with that knowledge you know looking up just like the level of creativity and boldness to look up not just at these single pitches but we're talking about like half dome <laughs> right you know or uh, sentinel rock or obviously el cap and to say that yeah it's possible these are just like huge leaps in one's imagination and, and belief so i was sitting in a, a movie theater in boulder colorado because the movie Progression was coming out in that year's Real Rock. And it featured Ambrosia. So the filmmakers invited me out to to see the rest of the films and stuff. And I didn't really, you know, I'd seen the piece already, so I wasn't, I didn't want, I don't like watching myself anyway. But what really caught my eye was this other segment in Progression, which was the first footage ever really taken of Tommy working on, it didn't even, it wasn't even called the Donwall at the time. It was just kind of Tommy's crazy project on El Cap. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was like pretty inspiring looking to say the least. But the way that the segment closed, it's kind of classic. Like there's this little sunset scene and and Tommy's voiceover just basically saying like, this is the future, you know, come and get it. It's going to take like the world's best sport climbers and boulderers uh, taking, turning their attention toward this to get it done. And even if I can't do it, I just want to uh, inspire the next generation to come get this thing done. And I, you know, being an ambitious little 25 year old looking for a new, you know, path in climbing, it just kind of hit me at the right moment. Right. And I, I just felt like I was being called out, you know, right then and there in the movie theater. I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> so I stewed on it for a couple months and then, you know, cause Tommy and I didn't know each other except by reputation. Right. I didn't, it's not like I could call him or anything like that. So I think I sent him a, Facebook message out of the blue and was just like, Hey, I know this is a uh, left field, but you know, if you need a partner, let me know. And then like a couple weeks later passed and I was like, oh, nothing's going to come of that. I get this response that says, yeah, man, meet me in Yosemite in October. So I was like, Oh shit, this is happening. <laughs> you know, you know, Tommy's more of a, you know, at this stage of my life, more of like an icon figure right. than like a, than a traditional climbing partnership. Right. You know, so I was kind of going into it as the pupil in a lot of ways. So, you know, I, I I had what I was bringing to the table with my bouldering background, but I really felt out of my league, as you could expect. So it turns out, I, I didn't learn this until many years later, but Tommy's plan on that first day together was to just try to break my spirit. Because <laughs> he's like, okay, sure, this kid is strong, but like, can he suffer? Right. You know, because big wall free climbing is more suffering than joy. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's more work than climbing. It's just, it's such an all around experience. So he's like, okay, it doesn't really matter if he's strong enough to do the moves if he's not willing to put up with some suffering. So he loaded me up with, I don't know, it felt like 100 pounds. It was probably 60 or somewhere in between. His dad had a haul bag as well. And so did Tommy. And you know, for five hours, we make our way up to East Ledge's descent. You got to jug some lines at a certain point with this pig hanging off your harness. And it's slow and grueling. And in early October, it's still quite hot out. So 
uh, we're getting bit by mosquitoes and stuff. It just kind of sucks all around. But I remember getting to the, finally the slabs relented and they started to flatten out. And I realized, oh, fuck, we're finally at the top of El Cap. And we started kind of in the afternoon. So the sun went down a long time ago. So we're just kind of under the stars. And it dropped this haul bag down on the ground. And it kind of felt weightless after having this pig on my back for five hours. And I stretched my arms up in the air and said, yeah, that felt good. Nice. <laughs> Which is kind of a weird thing to say after like suffering for five hours. But I think the fact that the suffering stopped made me just kind of forget about everything that had just happened. And, you know, Tommy told me in retrospect that it's like, okay, like, that's a good response, you know, initially to have after an experience like that. Like, maybe he can put up with, you know, the suffering parts of this project on top of the climbing parts. And then the next day, he wanted to test my comfort with the exposure. So he knew where the last pitch was going to go, but it was still quite dirty. So he tasked me with wrapping down this pitch and cleaning out one particular finger crack that led to the summit and also placing a bolt on a, on a long slab, like a 513 slab that we had to do. So I was just, you know, I wrapped down 100 feet and was just swinging around doing these giant swings, you know, trying to find the correct directional that would put me in position to, to drill this bolt. Just hooting and hollering and having the time of my life. And he was just kind of smiling, be like, all right, you know, he can handle the exposure. I think I say it in the movie, but it really is like stepping off the edge of the earth. Right. It's like as close. I mean, where else can you get that kind of exposure? I have no where idea. Where you just lean back and go from having solid ground under your feet to 3,000 feet of air under your butt. It's yeah. just visceral. Even if you've done it a hundred times, you know, yeah. every single time you're just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just loved it up there. I couldn't climb for shit. I was so gripped. You know, leading, I was just so freaking scared for years. It took me years to get comfortable up there. But uh, it wasn't the ex- – swinging around on the rope is no big deal. It was just being on the sharp end, often clipped into really bad gear and learning to trust it or ignore it or both. Uh, all that kind of stuff just took, took a super long time. Really, the most important thing that was happening was my transition – from being a pupil to being an actual partner, you know, because early on I'm just in student mode, right. learning how to set up portal edges and how to live on the wall and, and how to get comfortable with this climbing. And, you know, I really wasn't pulling much weight. I was pulling down moves. I did the dyno really quickly and was doing all these crux sequences really quickly, but I wasn't leading my pitches, you know, by any stretch. So yeah, the, those formative years where we were really piecing together the project for what six years of toiling away, you know, every fall, mostly what was happening like, on top of developing the skills and all of that, just to get the confidence and the physical ability to do it. I think most importantly was like just the the mental and emotional side of the project, both my relationship to it and my relationship with Tommy, and those things needed to evolve a lot based on where they started before we were going to have a chance at succeeding together. Take time to separate Sometimes be alone again Love hard but not enough Just learn to love yourself Broke down suffocate Sometimes be alone again 
some time to be alone Everybody wants to know your name In January 2015, and after six seasons of piecing together moves, sequences, and pitches, Kevin and Tommy Caldwell embarked on their final attempt to free climb the Dawn Wall, a month-long effort that would from then on be referred to as the push. Take time, separate, sometimes be alone again. Although the duo eventually succeeded, it did not come without periods of physical exhaustion and intense moments of doubt. For Kevin in particular, it was the crux pitch, a horizontal patchwork of non-existent holds interspersed with reachy and off-balance moves that would prove the toughest challenge. Imagine driving into Yosemite and it being empty. We're talking about the, one of the most popular national parks in the country. And, you know, in the middle of winter, it's pretty much empty. You kind of feel like you have the park to yourself. And in part because it's so damn cold. You know, so we, we drive into Yosemite. It's right after Christmas. And we know that we're packing up to go up on the wall for a couple of weeks to try to do this thing. And the park is kind of eerily quiet. The weather is super cold. And... You know, just like I was talking about with competitions earlier, it really felt like, okay, this is one of those moments, you know, where there are stakes and there are consequences, you know, like things matter starting now. We're not just going to jug up some fixed line and work some pitches today. Like we're going to walk to the base and we're going to start climbing and we're not going to come down until we do it or we fail one or the other. You know, that feeling in your, in your gut when you're walking to the base is a lot different than those hundreds of other days you've spent walking to the base to go work on a particular pitch. And early on, I'd say the first week was going amazingly smooth. We had great weather, it was super cold. Uh, every day we had a set of, we kind of broke down the whole push into like, okay, day one, we're going to do pitches one through five. Day two, we're going to do six through nine. Then we're going to take a rest day because pitch 10 is super hard. And if we do 10 quick, we'll tack on 11. If we struggle with 10, we'll just do 10, you know? And then the pattern was two days on, one day off, two days on, one day off. And if we did all the pitches that we kind of mapped out for each day, we would have topped out in 12 days. But on day seven, we were at the crux. So the crux is kind of smack dab in the middle of the wall. So it's roughly a 30-pitch route. And pitch 14 and 15 are the hardest pitches, 14, 15, and 16. The night before, we had done 14, so the next day, we were, the goal was, was 15. Tommy did it, I think, on his second try. He did like one warm-up burn, kind of half-assed tried the crux, but not really, and then pulled on and kind of one-hanged it, went across, and then just crushed it second try. It was really, really cool to watch. Yeah. But I had two split tips on my right hand that I, I split on day two, and I've been climbing with them taped up all the way up until then. 
and a combination of just like not having it dialed enough and the the messed up fingers just couldn't do it that night gave it four tries i think we climbed till maybe one in the morning and then just had to throw in the towel for that night and i remember and this was kind of the beginning of like a big battle um with pitch 15 that lasted seven days so that's why it took 19 we planned 12 but i got stuck for seven on this one pitch yeah stuck for seven days early on my reaction was like well kind of just appropriate that this thing put up a fight you know like okay cool it's going to be hard it's going to be a fight i'll try it again tomorrow it was kind of upbeat but by about like day five or six of being stuck on this thing it was getting pretty serious yeah uh there was no point despite how it's kind of framed in the movie where i actually gave up and was like okay i'm gonna just support you to the top we knew that that was on the table if i couldn't do it eventually but Tommy had given me this, we had that conversation at dinner. He's like, look, man, this is maybe like day four or five of being stuck. Like, however long it takes, don't worry about it. I'm having the time of my life up here. Like, it's all good. So that kind of gave me the breathing room to keep battling without feeling like I was holding him up. We had this agreement that, you know, if weather appeared on the forecast, we would just blast to the top and I would support him. But so long as the weather was good, he was he was behind me. So... Yeah, it was pretty pretty dramatic and and super super intense and you know standing on the edge of that portal edge, you know for this seventh day, looking across at that pitch, you know, but with you know cloudy overcast weather and a nice cold updraft blowing up the wall. It's like one of those moments where yeah, it's super intense and the pressure is really high, but also like how cool to be standing right there in that moment with all those pitches underneath us complete and the opportunity to finish this pitch and catch up to Tommy and, and see this dream come true. And it all came together. I think I did it my second try that day, that seventh day of attempts. And I just felt the whole momentum shift. I knew that if I could get through that pitch that, right. that I would be able to catch up, but I didn't know how many more days I could try it and fail and recover mentally into a place where I was properly motivated and hopeful and optimistic right. you know you got to be in the right mindset to do that kind of thing like yeah. forget forget the exterior pressures which were a whole another crazy part of the story but just for yourself like you gotta want to do it you know and you gotta feel like you have a good shot and if you've been spending a week getting beat down kind of at the same spot every single time it's hard to have a genuine sense of confidence that yeah it might go this time you know, and I think that's what I was battling more than anything was, okay, at a certain point, man, <laughs> uh, something's got to give. What did that experience mean to you getting through that? And like, how did you do it? Because I, I think a lot of people honestly would have thrown in the towel. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember like waking up and feeling calm and resolved and kind of looking forward to that moment. I didn't have to watch the wall go into the, the shade like I usually did because it was overcast and just kind of like having the morning unfold and really just looking forward to getting up there and, and doing it. I don't know where that resolve comes from, though. Maybe it's that competitive spirit. and But I just kind of had this feeling that it was going to, yeah, that I was going to do it. You know, I just didn't feel like I couldn't, you know, people have asked what what that particular like struggle with pitch 15 was like what was the motivation you know like what was going on in your head like how did you get how did you get through it 
I, I wasn't like sitting in the portal edge on those rest days. I wasn't thinking about what it was going to be like to top out with Tommy, you know, triumphant and raise our hands in the air and celebrate and all this stuff. I was thinking about what it was going to be like to have almost climbed the Dawn wall and to sit with that memory for the rest of my life. Right. And I was just simply unwilling. It's as simple as that. I was like unwilling to have that be the outcome. Right. It's just like, no, that's not what's going to happen here. I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you describe what it felt like to reach the anchor? It was, it was euphoric and cathartic, as you can imagine. This is stuff that was left on the editing room floor, but that shirt I was wearing was a shirt that we created in memory of my, one of my best friends, Brad Parker, who had passed away that August, you know, soloing in Tuolumne. And we started a foundation that I'm still a part of to this day. But that shirt was kind of a in memory of Brad shirt. And it's almost like, like, I don't really believe in ghosts or afterlife or spirits or anything like that. But when going through the crux, the sense of confidence that I wasn't going to tip over backwards in the fall, like every other try, is similar as to what it would feel like if someone's hand is just ever so gently on your back, hmm. kind of holding you into the wall. Not so much that you have to stop trying, but just giving you just enough confidence that you're not going to slip. You're not going to lose the balance and tip over backwards. Brad lived a chest. He was a larger than life character when it comes to how much energy he had for everything, whether it was surfing or making smoothies or mountain biking or climbing. He just had so much damn stoke. And I knew that he would, he'd be looking after me and he wanted me, he wanted me up there, you know, despite what a hole his death left in, in my heart and the whole community's heart. Like, I think he would have been disappointed if I didn't recover from that enough to go back that season. Because it wasn't in question. I really didn't know if I was going to go back. Hmm. It just, when he fell, I, I just stopped caring. Like, it, it just seems so inconsequential, right. this project. <clears throat> I was like, oh, you know, it was the first time I really faced grief, like the experience of true grieving. And that was hard. But there could have been a little bit of depression there as well. So I really didn't know if I was going to come back. And in that, that moment, whether Brad had a hand in it or not, like, it really just Going through the crux, it just didn't feel like I was gonna. Just didn't feel like I was gonna fall. It oh. felt different than every other try. The wind was blowing super hard, so I couldn't hear Tommy. I couldn't hear anything but the wind in my ears. Uh, you know, windy conditions. It just it isolates you, even if you're standing right next to somebody. When it's super windy out, you're in your own world. You can't communicate. Wind is a really interesting force of nature. It's yeah. I think it's really underappreciated what it does to your psyche but because it was so damn windy i was just like you're already in your head when you're climbing obviously but it was just another level right. and yeah getting to the anchor it was like that bubble popped you know and i kind of came out of it and realized what had just happened yeah it was it was totally cathartic totally euphoric Much too long, undying love has come and gone. Her golden hair and killer eyes that made you weep under the sky. You lost a friend of many years. All is lost when you're living in fear. One of the things we talk about a lot on the Fernline is the importance of partnerships. 
Sometimes we can do things alone, and sometimes it's better that we do. But oftentimes, goals can't be achieved without a solid partner, and this was certainly the case for Kevin and Tommy on the Dawn Wall. I asked Kevin to talk about his partnership with Tommy, what he learned from him on the Dawn Wall, and how he's applied those lessons to his life today. Tommy's easily the most optimistic person that I know, for better or worse. I think it can get him into some sticky situations sometimes. But the power of optimism is something that I didn't fully appreciate before the Dawn Wall. I'm not an innately optimistic person. I'm not pessimistic. I'm just kind of like somewhere in between. But Tommy is like unreasonably optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) in pretty much every moment in time you know there's this funny story in 2010 we were on a on a push we'd been up there for a week and you have great cell service up there right and clouds are coming in so we do what you do you look at the weather and it's like an eight-day snowstorm and it's not just localized to yosemite it's like hitting the whole state of california you know wind advisory all this stuff so it's kind of clear, like, okay, we got to go down, you know, like this season over. We're not close to sending the crux. But Tommy's looking up at the sky. Meanwhile, there's like a 30-second break in the clouds, not even the blue sky. The dark just, the sky just goes from being dark to a little bit lighter. And he takes that as, oh, you know, I think it's going to go around us. <laughs> I think we're going to be okay. That's Maybe we should just stay up here. And I'm like, what are you, you're delusional, man. Like, I get optimism, but that's just delusional. So... But, I mean, the power of optimism is is incredible, really, especially if your ambition exceeds your ability, you know? Right. Because uh, you got to bridge that gap. And I think what the project has taught me is that what the whole experience taught me is that when your ambition exceeds your ability, which is just P.S., like, an awesome place to exist. If you can get comfortable living in that realm, it's a really enriching thing, like zone to exist in. But so when, when your ambition like exceeds your ability, you're just, you're just so driven. You're so inspired to improve, to, to achieve that level of ambition, whatever it may be, you know, uh, whether it's a climbing project or not. But Bridging that gap, man, if you can't learn to embrace the hard parts, it's going to be really hard to close that gap between your, your ability and your ambition and learning how to, learning how to embrace that, that hardship and that pain and suffering and fear and all the rest is probably the most valuable thing that I learned in that whole experience with the Dawn Wall because yeah, it wasn't always just like, you know, sunny days and nice comfortable holds and sending pitches first try it was quite the opposite right 
That's really cool. One of the things I wanted to ask you is how has your life changed since you completed that climb and with the film coming out? Like I know that it's, I mean, the film's a big deal. I think in a lot of ways it, it hasn't changed all that much, which might kind of be a surprise to hear. I mean, only recently did Jackie and I move out of like this 400 square foot cottage that, uh, that we had been living in for the last like five years. It's Cincinnati. pretty small. It's pretty friggin' small. It's like a studio. Uh, but we loved it. We had a, two acres and some sheep and you know, it was a super pretty little spot. But I mean, so for a while, like there was a moment in time where just like life got super busy, you know, like lots of demand uh, on our time. Right. So that looked like a bunch of travel and a bunch of, you know, sharing the story with people that wanted to hear it and things like that. But at least for me, things have calmed down on the Donwall front, which is kind of nice. Right. Kind of get my get my life back and get to spend time a little bit more deliberately on the things that are current for me when it comes to ambition and what's right. next, right. you know, as opposed to recounting the past. It was super fun to go on the promo tour for the film, though, and just see people connect with the movie for the first time yeah. and kind of relive the experience if they remembered following along when it happened. You know, we went to this theater in Paris, man. It was crazy. Super old theater, a couple hundred years old, and there were 2,000 people in this theater. I wow. couldn't believe my eyes. It was just insane. And they were so, so stoked at the end of it. You know, the ovation is the kind of thing that can just move you to tears at the right. end. It was really, really powerful. So just to see things like that, I mean, how how special to have been through something that can move people to be inspired. Like, what a great outcome. Whether or not folks totally understand if we were aid climbing or free climbing or soloing or how we slept up there or all that stuff, you know, like none of that really matters because the reason people followed along wasn't because they understood all that shit. It's because they were inspired by the, by the effort itself. I've seen a lot of long-winded, you know, hot takes on why the Donwall story did what it did with a mainstream audience. But I really don't think it's anywhere near to the truth. I think it's just super simple. It was just like right. people are inspired by big dreams and, and struggling and overcoming. You know, it just happened to happen, like unfold in real time and in a really familiar place. Everyone's heard of Yosemite. I think that is a simple but overlooked uh, component of it all. And yeah, man, I think it's, people just were inspired and people want to be inspired in life. Yeah. You know, the fucking news is so depressing. It was especially depressing then. The Charlie Hebdo terrorist attacks had just happened. So, you know, that was dominating the news and it was right around New Year. So everyone kind of had this sense of, you know, renewal that comes with, with a fresh year. So I think the combination of those two things was kind of the right story at the right time. Don't look away from what you've done It's all a part of growing up And you might regret the race you've run But don't look away from what you've done 
Kevin's life has certainly changed since the Dawn Wall. When the film came out, he toured all over the world, interacting with audience members and witnessing firsthand the power of inspiration in people's lives. But after all that, there are other things in life besides climbing that are important to Kevin. As a matter of fact, at the time of our interview, Kevin and his wife Jackie were a week out from expecting their first child. Well, I'll take the time to understand If you take the time to be my friend I asked Kevin to touch on the things that are important to him and to talk about some goals he has in life moving forward. needed something more than just my climbing goals to achieve a sense of fulfillment and purpose in my life. It's like while climbing is my career in this moment in time, it's not everything to me. You know, it's, it's where I experience a lot of joy. Like I just love climbing. I love being outside, but that's just one aspect of life, you know, is that like personal sense of of joy in an activity. So even like while I was working on the Dawn Wall, there were always things outside of my own personal climbing goals that are important to me. And it's always evolving with time. But right now it's, yeah, it's obviously starting a family and all the responsibility that comes with that. It's super exciting and really scary at the same time. It feels like standing at the base of a big wall and looking up and being like, holy shit, I don't know how I'm going to get up this thing. But you only have one choice, and that's to do it. You know, right. um, I'm building a a ground up climbing gym in my hometown, which I've been working on for the last couple of years. Then that's really important to me because climbing it's on everyone's radar up here in Northern California, but there's not a lot of access to it. And I just want to broaden the access. I feel like the the I think the common theme of how I'm spending my time right now, whether it's nonprofit or for profit, is broadening the access to the sport. I just feel like the opportunities for becoming aware of it, this life-changing sport for the better, the the opportunities are super narrow. If your friend doesn't invite you or you don't get invited to a birthday party, you know, as you're a kid, like how are you going to become aware that this sport even exists? And it's just such a great, I mean, this sport has the power to totally change the trajectory of your life, no matter what walk of life you come from right so on the for-profit side like for those who have the means like i want to broaden the access for them to get into the sport become aware of it you know experience it with others without the place being too crowded make it easy to find and all the rest and then on the nonprofit side it's it's the same thing it's broadening the access to the sport and making kids aware of it. So instead of the way I see climbing gyms, we're in this era where it's very much a a build it and they will come kind of thing, Mm -hmm. but build it and they will come if they can afford it (laughs) kind of thing. Um, So the, the purpose of the nonprofit is not to do a build it and they will come. It's to put it where the kids already are. 
So that was kind of the light bulb for me. And this idea is old. I started working on this in 2010. And that's just using the Boys and Girls Club of America infrastructure because they have 4,000 plus clubs and serve four and a half million kids a year. Yeah. There's just four and a half million kids hanging out after school at these clubs on any given day. Why not start there? Like really simple. Let's just start there. So the nonprofit's called One Climb because One Climb has the power to just totally change a kid's life. Nice. And, you know, you do. So we've done this in a couple cities now, even if it just changes one kid's life for the better. You know, it's totally, totally freaking worth it. Right. The, the magic to one climb isn't that we just like build walls and after school type centers. People have been doing that on their own for years. You know, YMCA has a bunch of um, uh, lifetime fitness. You know, everyone's got a climbing wall, it seems like. What's special about what we're doing with one climb is that we don't just give them and pay for a climbing wall and make it awesome. We connect these kids to the people behind the sport. So we only build walls where there's a community of climbers that's based in a climbing gym within like a less than 10 minute drive from the club that we build a wall. Mm -hmm. And then the gym really, this wall becomes their sister facility, you know, and they, they take care of it like a sister. They look after it. They, you know, they love it like a sibling and they really, you create this, mentorship connection between the staff and the members and the kids that are at the club and the kids that are really taking a liking to the sport because the gym is so close they can probably walk if they wanted to down the street to experience the next version of it because the walls that we build are simple on purpose we don't want them to be too tall or too intimidating just meant to be a stepping stone but the most important thing of all this is that we're connecting these kids who are experiencing climbing for the first time with the people behind it that can bring the mentorship that can give them the programs and the support and the pathways for experiencing the sport in full you know i mean lots of climbing gyms have a you know gym to crag programs it's for getting people outside like really the point is to just broaden the funnel you know right. of awareness for the sport and i want to build as many of these damn walls as i can yeah. And um, I wish I could. I wish I could announce some exciting news on the one climb front, but I can't do it just yet. Yeah. Um, maybe we'll do a little follow up. But yeah, yeah. There's some good. There's some good stuff. Some good stuff coming. Cool. That's that's awesome. And then I, I do want to give you an opportunity just to just to talk about uh, freedom to focus the podcast that you're doing. Um, just maybe just talk briefly about how that came together and, and what your goal is uh, for that podcast. So I'm a naturally curious person. That's just an attribute of my personality. So when Sterling Rope came to me and asked, I've, I've been climbing on their ropes and, and I've known and worked with them since I was a kid, literally, like before I could drive. So they're probably one of my longest standing partners in the industry. So when Carolyn and everyone at Sterling called me up, we're like, hey, we got this idea for a podcast. It's like, oh, cool. You want me to be on it or something? Like, no, we want you to host it. I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Me? (laughs) Uh, I was like, okay, I'll try. Like, I don't know. It seems like a lot. Like, don't worry. You don't have to produce it, you know, thankfully, because life's just too crazy and I, I wouldn't do a good job. But we've got great partners to help on the production side. That's awesome. 
But the premise of it is just exploring and talking to people who spend their life in the vertical world, quite simply. Just uh, so we talk to we talk to firefighters and arborists and cavers and climbers and all sorts of different people, and I just kind of get their story. You know, a lot of these people have super interesting stories. So, you know, my style is to just get on the phone with them and and just be naturally curious and give them the the opportunity to tell their story. Right. You know, and it's just super fun. I mean, one of my favorite episodes, uh, I interviewed an arborist who had a crazy uh, accident where she was attacked by bees right. while she was up in the tree and then in the midst of her rescue, something went terribly wrong and she fell on, you know, insult to injury. She's right. getting stung by all these deadly bees. And then she craters into the ground and like breaks every bone in her body and makes a full recovery against all odds. And now is back in the trees and, and teaching safety and operations and things like that. But the whole time I was on the phone with her, I was just Googling everything because I'm a beginner again. That's another thing that right. I love about this podcast right. is it, it puts me into other people's worlds that I'm completely unfamiliar with. You know, I don't know anything about being an arborist. So she's using lingo just like climbers use lingo. I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking this stuff up as we're talking and I'm looking up the pic, like what this bee looks like that that was stinging her and it's the scariest thing you've ever seen. So oh, it's just like a super fun outlet to to learn and, and, you know, scratch that curious itch of just learning from people and hearing their stories yeah. and getting a chance to, to tell those. It's super fun. Yeah. Turns out it's, it's fun to interview people, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Cause it's not about you. You just give people the space to like, to, to tell their story and share their story. And right. it's important to provide those opportunities. Yeah. We all like live in a silo, you know, of everything. We're all so busy and there's so much going on. It's nice to be able to push pause and just listen for once, you know? One of the things that I really enjoy about the podcast is that it's not centrally focused on climbing. What's the plan for the podcast? Is it something that you're going to plan on doing indefinitely or is it something that's going to happen for a period of time? I'm not sure. So I know that season one is going to be nine episodes. So I think we're recording, maybe it's the last episode tomorrow actually. So I don't know if we're going to do a season two or not. If they ask me back, I would love to do it. Cool. I think it's just, it's kind of up to them if they want to keep, keep doing it, but I'm having a blast with it. And it's cool to hear that it's resonating with folks as well. You know, yeah. I've never done this before. So, uh, <laughs> just kind of like learning as I go. I did. Oh man. Like I, there was this one episode. I, I forget. I think it just the one that just came out. I went like the first 40 minutes and didn't press record. <laughs> <laughs> Man, New, newbie mistake, was, rookie mistake. It was so bad. It's it devastating, so bad. isn't it, when that happens? Oh, it was terrible. Luckily, I mean, I have the best part. Like, there's this production company called Kingspoke, based out of Maine, and, and they do all the heavy lifting of the editing and nice. the music and the production. They had a backup recording going oh. at the same time. Thank God. Yeah. But like I totally didn't have the recording locally. Like usually I have it right on my machine and right. I, I send them the file right afterwards. But <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you can't believe this. Yeah, but that's like I haven't been recording. Yeah, that's like one of those things that you do. And it's like you learn that lesson one time and you never make that mistake again. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, that was pretty horrifying to look down and just see the time code all at zero still. I was like, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Kevin's stories as I did. And I hope you can apply some of his expertise, life wisdom, and inspiration to your next trip in the mountains. To find out more about Kevin's current and past projects, you can head on over to his website at kevinjorgeson.com. Don't forget to leave a review for The Fernline on Apple Podcasts, or if you enjoy the content we create, if The Fernline adds value to your life, please consider becoming a monthly backer on Patreon. And finally, if you enjoy the tunes you hear, you can check out more of my music on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, and evanphillips.net. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fernline. Line.